0: Good afternoon, good morning, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you may be. And welcome to the Wednesday edition of 7 Investing Now. My name, of course, is Daniel Brooks Klein. I am excited to be here, but I am also exhausted, Steve Simington. Steve Simington is joining me today. Steve, (laughs) we have dealt with let's call it a whipsaw, a roller coaster. I don't, I don't know exactly what the term would be, but the market has been crazy. So the original focus of this show was going to be, should you buy the dip? That made a lot of sense at the end of the day yesterday when the market was down across two days, like something like 800 points for the Dow. I might be getting the number a little bit wrong. Today, as last we looked, the Dow was up 424 points. It had recovered most of the dip, but I think that actually illustrates what we're talking about. So we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about should you buy, and I'm going to say a dip rather than the dip because we're no longer in the dip, uh, getting very confusing and close to a record for saying dip in a show. We are also (laughs) going to talk about China's Evergrande, which is one of the companies that's behind the initial fall here. And then, of course, we are going to talk about what happened with Disney and Disney Plus numbers uh, yesterday. I will just say do not panic, Disney remains an excellent company, uh, but we will get into that at length. So Steve, we wanted to sort of reset a little bit. We would like your questions and comments. If you have questions about the market, what's happening, when you should buy, if you should sell, all of those types of questions, we are happy to take them. We will work them in as the show goes on. We know this could be a little exhausting, but when when the day closed yesterday, the market was down a few percentage points, things looked pretty ugly. Um, and I was pretty confident, and I've written about this for members, I believe Steve edited it, where I basically said, we've had a lot of these during the pandemic where there's like some negative news out there and it sends the market down 800 points, but then by like Friday, we're at, we're at a new all-time high. We're not guaranteeing that will happen. There are market crashes, but it is it's worth pointing out that markets don't crash based on what might happen. Markets crash on what actually happens. Now markets fall, on, on news and, and rumors and innuendos and what could happen. So right now, nothing has systemically changed. And that is really important to point out. But um, let's get into some common things people say and get Steve's reaction to them. So buy the dip, but don't wait for the dip. Steve, your thoughts here. <laughs>
1: uh it 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 just feels like you're you're overthinking things like uh buy the dip don't don't wait for the dip um i i just continuously add to my portfolio as cash allows and in businesses that i look for i i don't i don't think too hard about buying the dip um that's just my my sensory thing.
0: So I don't either. I maintain a here's what I'm gonna buy list, but here's what I will do. When you see a day like yesterday, where Disney goes down, I don't remember the number, but like six or 7%, it was down a bunch. If mm-hmm. Disney was something I was gonna buy next week, I might loan myself the money to buy Disney at an advantageous point. Now the problem is if the money's not already sitting in your investing account, you probably missed that window anyway, the way stocks have been behaving. Or if money is sitting there, Maybe I buy the third thing on my list before I buy the first thing on my list because I can get uh, an advantageous entry point. But I don't change what I'm going to buy unless you see a really, really big fall. If there's something I love and it drops by forty percent. I'm going to find money to buy it. But yeah. a lot of people have looked at stocks like you know your high flying tech stocks, your really successful stocks that oh, I'm going to buy it when it hits this price point, and then it never hits that price point, and you realize how much you've lost. Let's move on to point number two. This is going to be a fast-moving show. And again, we would love for you to chime in. Tell us how you feel about the market. Tell us, did you buy anything? Did you sell anything? What are you doing? Uh, Steve, never worry about buying at exactly the right time.
1: Yeah, um, wholeheartedly agree uh, there. That's just something that, I mean, I guess never say never, um, but I just, you know, I try not to time bottoms and and time selling at the top, buy low, sell high. It's like I just buy and then buy some more, you know, shares of great businesses over time that I think are attractively valued relative to their long-term potential. So, I mean, whether I buy this week or next month, um, you know, often is of little consequence, but, uh, you know, we will find... uh, attractive opportunities every single month uh, and and step in you know, when we think they're attractive at those valuations. So um, exact right time. That's time in the market is so hard.
0: Steve, is, is this a case where you kind of have to separate good companies from the overall market, meaning that really, Unless something has a crazy run-up, that you're identifying good companies, and you're you're concerned with where they're going to go in ten years, not with yeah. where they're going to go based on like what the CEO says at some conference nobody's ever heard of, which is not the case of the conference Disney was at. That was actually a big conference.
1: Yeah, yeah, and that's that that's exactly right. I mean, it's these are things that we're thinking about long term, and uh, you know, I, I'm generally buying a stock with the intention of holding on to it for years. Um, And and usually the near term swings I try to keep in mind, you know, even if the stock falls in the couple weeks after I buy it, uh, generally not too concerned. Unless there's some thesis altering uh, incident uh, that actually happens to to trigger me wanting to sell. Uh, And that's something that we actually were writing about this week on our 7investing research portal, uh, if you you take a peek at those. But unless there's some thesis altering information uh, that fundamentally changes the case for owning that stock, I'm relatively unconcerned.
0: And the cool thing about those articles you just mentioned too is there are there are public facing articles where any of you watching today can read those articles, and it's basically us talking about selling. And then there is a members only part of those articles that gets into specific thoughts on specific companies uh, and and what we're thinking the red flags are. So there is a benefit to not being a member, but it is much better to be a member of Seven Investing, Steve when shares in a company you really like fall do you view that as a buying opportunity or do you tune that out as well
1: um, you know it really depends on the reason you know a lot of times you see shares of companies falling for no particular reason or maybe you know in in sympathy with with some of its peers or something and and uh, you know if i see a pretty steep drop in a company that i like at, e- at an even higher valuation sure i'll use that as a buying opportunity but um, you know that's also to say we we shouldn't also keep a a close eye on our winners and and adding to them you know too often i think people um, focus too much on adding to beaten down stocks rather than adding to uh, their existing winners thinking the winners just won't run higher and that ends up being kind of the opposite is true so uh add to your winners is is kind of an underrated piece of investing advice
0: and steve you talked about an investing thesis. The thesis is sort of the long-range roadmap of why we own a company. So let's pretend you own Tesla, because that's a stock I don't own. So I'm putting it out there as an example. And you see the US heading into a, an economic downturn, and you think that's going to be bad for Tesla for a couple of years. They haven't, economic downturns have not proven to be bad for Tesla, but let's pretend you thought that was going to be. The yeah. reality is your thesis is only busted if you truly believe the economic downturn is going to be for 20 years that it's that it's not going to be something we recover from so these aren't easy decisions to make like you know so We've talked a little bit about, you know, uh, affordable luxuries like Starbucks or, or going out to dinner at a, at a modest restaurant. Let's say a, a BJ's or a Chili's. Those are both publicly traded companies. Well, sure, if your personal income takes a downturn, you might go to Chipotle or, or something a little bit less nice. Uh, but that's not a long term change. That's sort of you, you might also be someone who would have gone to a Ruth's Chris Steakhouse and instead you're going to go to BJ's. So, like, it's really Uh, It's really one of those things where we don't often know how some of those things are going to impact the economy. I have one more here, Steve. We're moving through this segment quickly because again, our goal when we wrote this segment, was to kind of hold hands, uh, you know, to sort of say, hey, the market's down, but we're in it for the long term. We still believe in things. And of course, the market has recovered. Though, as we talked about before the show, I would not be shocked if the market somehow ended up down today because it's been that type of week where things just go very quickly on very little news. But Steve, is it okay to buy at an all-time high?
1: Uh, Absolutely. And that's something that I just kind of alluded to. Uh, I I tend to jump the gun because my train of thought leads to these other questions, which is funny. But um, yeah, uh, most definitely. That's something that uh, for a lot of businesses, winners tend to keep on winning and uh, the strong get stronger and their share prices continue to rise. And and too often people (laughs) trim their winners when they should be uh, really looking at the companies that are underperforming and determining uh, whether to trim them instead. And uh, usually trimming your your winners ends up being something that costs you uh, market-beating returns over the
0: long term. As always, we are happy to take your questions and comments or for you to just watch along at home. Uh, we've had shows with uh, hundreds of comments and shows with none, so it can go in both directions. We're going to move on to talking about China's Evergrande momentarily. Before we do that, let us remind everybody that we are Seven Investing. What is the core of Seven Investing? It is our seven highest conviction stock picks each month. Each one of our seven lead advisors makes a stock pick, does a, a massive write-up. I still have a lot of work to do on mine. Uh, we shoot a, we make a PowerPoint presentation. We shoot a video. Our members get as much or as little information on the pick as they want. They might go, you know what? That Steve's really sharp, and I really like what he does. I'm just going to buy his pick every month. They might go, eh, you know, with with Dan, like I'm not so sure I'm gonna read everything he has to say, or maybe it's somewhere in the middle where you just want to read our key takeaways, or you're just concerned about management or valuation. We make it really easy for you to get to those picks. How do you get those picks? You become a member at seveninvesting.com/slash subscribe, and for $49 a month or $399 a year, uh, you get access to those picks. And if you enter now as the code, you get a discount. Uh, I don't know what that discount is. We just had this shared in our, our, our personal chat, uh, but you get a discount if you use the code now. So please, as soon as the show is over, go to seveninvestingcom slash subscribe and become a member. That is the last promotion I will do during this show, at least the last uh, directed promotion I will do. So Steve, Let's talk a little bit about what's next for Evergrande. As I mentioned on Monday's show, a company I first heard of Monday morning. So it's not like this is one that was on the tip of my tongue, but, uh, our headline here is what's next for Evergrande. But the first piece here is what is Evergrande? Uh, Steve, if you want to explain, what is this company?
1: Uh, okay. So, um. Evergrande, for, for those of you not familiar, is one of China's largest real estate developers. Um, they're part of the global 500. They're absolutely massive. So uh, it's kind of interesting how there's so many businesses out there, um, global businesses that you know, we as Americans you know, think that, that we kind of hold the have a stranglehold on the world's largest businesses. But Evergrande is massive. Uh, huge real estate developers listed in Hong Kong, uh, based in uh, southern Chinese city of Shenzhen. Uh, employs about 200,000 people and uh, indirectly helps sustain more than 3.8 million jobs each year. And uh, it's made its name in residential property. It has more than 1,300 projects in 280 cities across China, but it also has uh, investments in uh, electric vehicles, sports, theme parks, food and beverage business, uh, everything from bottled water, groceries, dairy products, other goods. Um, But yeah, so Evergrande, its reach is vast. And uh, it's come under fire for some of its debts. You might want to take it from there.
0: Yeah, that's the challenge here. That this is a company that has very little cash on hand and has a lot of debt coming to coming due. And the issue is that that debt that's coming due, they may pay their Chinese debt, pay their, their, their native country debt, but not pay the debts they hold in the U.S. Uh, Steve... Sort of. Why don't you go a little more into? And there's some notes in the doc here. If this is not at the top of your off the top of your head, sure. what's going wrong here? Why, why is this all of a sudden a global news story?
1: So, um, part of the problem is that Evergrande, as you kind of alluded to, has more than 300 billion dollars in debt. And uh, over the last few weeks, it's warned investors that it's facing uh, kind of a cash flow crunch, and suggesting that it could default uh, on some uh, like a lot of its debts. Uh, if it's unable to raise money quickly, so uh, it's due to pay out interest. I think the first kind of test uh, that, that they're t- talking about is an interest payment that's worth about 83 million. I think that it's an initial issue of about two billion dollars in debt that they owe about 83 million um, in interest on due tomorrow, and um, creditors have basically, you know, not so subtly hinted that uh, it's probably going to default on that. And uh, so it should be interesting the 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 concern among investors so far has been, will this spread? Um, Because, you know, three hundred billion dollars in debt is that's a lot. And uh, they're hoping that this doesn't turn into kind of a contagion that that uh, that spreads beyond China's borders. And uh, that's the worry. And that's what kind of drove down global markets yesterday.
0: Yeah and the the big concern here is just how big this company is. Um you know so they have about 2 billion dollars in payments coming due. They have 200,000 employees and indirectly affect something like 3.8 million people. But I think it's important to point out cuz there's been a lot of talk about this like leading to a crash. But here's the reality. Uh Lehman Brothers has been sort of the number one comparison here, and there is a pretty big difference. Lehman Brothers dealt with financial assets and sort of when that chain breaks down, there's nothing backing it. There's nothing really there. And in this case, Steve, this is a real estate company, so why don't we talk about some of the things they're looking at doing that I think alleviate this crisis uh, and sort of make it not as serious as it's being portrayed. Albeit the media has pulled back a little bit after early in the week, this being the end of the world, there were definitely some some saner voices prevailing.
1: Yeah, so um, you know, part of the big thing is is that uh, Evergrande. Um, something that you'll you'll see increasingly pointed out is as the the situation becomes more clear is yes, while well, Lehman has uh, you know they had uh, stakes in complicated financial instruments and and uh, yeah that, that chain breaks down uh, it's very difficult to um, you know when, when there's nothing backing that these these instruments uh, when they crash um, that 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 Led to a you know a breakdown of the financial system, but uh, Evergrande actually holds a lot of land, uh, a lot of hard assets uh, that it could monetize that way, and uh, you, you have global economists stepping out and saying now that uh, you know, China, uh, the Chinese government, has the the tools and the policies in place to handle this should it become an issue, uh, and um, a lot of uh, Kind of industry watchers in china are saying you know what they're not going to let this spread beyond their borders uh there is some worry that they will uh kind of pay themselves before they pay you know international investors in in that sense uh, i'm not so sure, so sure that's the case um but I, I think this will be somewhat limited uh but it, it it probably will result in in kind of a step down uh in china's growth though because uh you know it's it's a lot of assets that are in the country and that's going to be kind of the challenges china's economy
0: so Evergrande right now is trying to sell its office building. And I think the number is $1.8 billion. So right there, if they sell that, that covers its, its near-term debt. I assume they would be leasing that back, uh, which is actually a, a pretty typical arrangement for a lot of companies. But that's the difference. So Steve, if you owe me money, and that money is unsecured, well, I'm, I'm kind of out of luck. If you owe me money, but it's a lien on your house, well, at some point, I force you to sell the house. So I think the difference here between some of the collapses we've seen is even if this company falls apart, there's still a lot of pieces to sell. And sure, creditors might get 85, 90 cents on the dollar, but they're not gonna get zero because there's real physical assets. So is this one of those things where the market just overreacted Monday, Tuesday because it the numbers are really big Big and, and China's really scary in terms of any story coming out of China as a negative has moved the market in, in bad directions?
1: Yeah, I, I think that's part of it is that uh, that people sort of, there's a knee-jerk reaction to, oh my God, this is a massive company with hundreds of billions of dollars in debt. Uh, will this spread? Will this impact the global financial system? Similar to something that we saw uh, back in 2008, 2009, and uh, I think it's becoming increasingly clear that that's, yeah, they're not an apples-to-apples comparison. Um, but you know, we also have sort of other concerns that have maybe put people on edge and skittish investors were, uh, kind of more willing to, to embrace that knee jerk reaction and sell everything until they knew kind of more uh, of what was happening. So, um, you know, we, we've got other stuff like the fed meeting coming up and, and, uh, and concerns over, um. You know, their, their, their own asset purchases and, and uh, easy money policies when that's going to wane, the pandemic dragging on. There's a lot of stuff that's kind of weighing on investor sentiment right now, um, but it is really interesting to see people uh, kind of aggressively buying in response as they realize it's not so bad as it seems.
0: Steve is this one of those cases where after the past 18 months like we're having a hard time being long-term optimistic because every time it seems like things are are going well you know right. we we hear about some new sort of monster or or terrible thing that's going to uh you know unbrighten our day is it just sort of we've always been sort of a news-driven society but now are we just much more likely to see the negative like as a as a national psyche and i know you're not a psychologist so so feel free to just share your personal thoughts there.
1: maybe maybe there's some fatigue there uh just headline fatigue and people you know just getting tired of uh uh, of worrying about that but but it's also so interesting um because people are trying to decide whether um you know with the major market indexes uh for the stock market still kind of trading you know hovering right around their all-time highs and uh and they're wondering Uh, when the next pullback is going to be. And yes, it's a matter of when, not if uh, the stock market will crash or even just correct in the near term. Um, But, uh, you know, we we might get a a rally into the end of the year before, you know, the Fed starts kind of getting more serious about um, scaling back um, their bond purchases and and, uh, kind of that stimulus that's helped the markets rise in the first place.
0: Yeah. And to tie it back to the beginning of the show, it's worth noting that while crashes happen and we won't pretend the next crash won't happen, that historically, if you've owned good companies and and hold them, you're going to be fine. Now, obviously, the reasons for a crash might make what seems like a good company, not as good a company. That is certainly, you know, maybe you had bank assets or or real estate assets in 2008, But even those for the most part, if you held them through the crisis, uh, eventually you were going to recover. So that's what we'll say. And And I wrote something about this for members today, but exhale, step away from your portfolio a little bit, take a walk, recognize that the companies we recommend, the companies we hope you're buying, are good companies that will get through this. And sure, if I feel like my portfolio is not worth as much, might I not take that vacation or or buy a Peloton or, or have a fancy dinner? Sure. There's a mental part of it but that's not really long-term sentiment. That is just sort of short term in the moment. We would like your questions and comments. We see a lot of you watching. We don't see a lot of you saying hello. So feel free to jump in, ask us whatever you like. Steve is a hypoallergenic dog. I learned that the other day. Uh, And as we move into the Disney segment of the program, I will stop and quickly say today is September 22nd. Tomorrow is September 23rd, my 21st wedding anniversary. So if I am slow to respond to any of you on social media, um, it is probably because I haven't bought a gift yet and I have to figure that out tomorrow. I bought some of the gift, but not all. And there's no chance my wife will hear this because she has never listened to this program. Uh, with that being said, we're going to move on to the home stretch. This is one that uh, is a company I cover, but Steve actually surprised me with an article he wrote about this back in 2019. We will get to that later on. Uh, and here's what I want to say. This is, I headline this, why disney shareholders have nothing to worry about steve you want to set the table a little bit about what happened yesterday and why i'm saying hey don't panic disney shareholders yeah
1: um yeah and i mean for perspective my my coverage i love disney my the very first stock i I ever bought was marvel entertainment you know back when i mean why not of course and i was just when disney bought it but uh should have just held on to my disney portion of those shares uh but anyway um the uh disney yesterday uh felt pretty hard after the company, uh, the CEO kind of warned of head, uh, of headwinds on the subscription video streaming growth in the fourth quarter. This is their Disney Plus service, and uh, they they were talking about production slowdowns that that were caused by the Delta variant. As we mentioned earlier, the pandemic is kind of dragging on uh, and it'll lead to a lighter slate of new programming than Disney had originally projected. And um, so they are expecting now to add nearly uh, low digit single millions of streaming subscribers in the fourth quarter uh, for Disney Plus. So uh, that, that's the concern right now is, is uh, people are saying, oh my gosh, this is kind of the, the shining light for Disney through the pandemic. So, uh, in, in the form of Disney Plus. So yeah, that's that's the concern.
0: We've been to this rodeo before. It happened with Netflix. Now, Disney has been unable to accurately forecast numbers because the growth has been so much faster than expected. We'll get to that and Steve's uh, futuristic prediction uh, <laughs> late, later on. But here's what happened with Netflix. Netflix basically said, hey, we're going to gain 20 million subscribers in 2021. I don't remember what the number was. And they probably gained... 22 million in the first two quarters. And then in the third quarter, when they only gained a million or two, everyone went, oh my God, growth is slowing. But here's the reality. I always talk about this like a marathon. If you run really hard for the first 18 miles of the marathon, and then your pace slows down, but you still win, you still... ...of a graphic here. Um if we want to pull that graphic up, that does not seem to be happening. There we are. Disney Plus subscriber count. So they opened up in uh 2020 with 26.5 million. In 2020, they got in August of 2020, they got to basically their 2024 goal of 60 of 60.5 million. Uh and then heading into this quarter, they're at 116 million. Um, Steve, we'll talk about the why in a second, uh, but and you can take that one down, JT. Uh do you remember the original projections you wrote about them in 2019? Yeah.
1: yeah, so I just dug up an old article that I wrote uh, a couple of years ago uh, about Disney. And uh, I was like, I'm pretty sure they, they've already crushed that. But yeah, when they first announced Disney+, Plus, they were predicting uh, that they set a goal to achieve Profitability, uh, I think on an EBITDA basis, by 2024, and that would have required amassing as many as 60 million to 90 million subscribers by the end of 2024. That was their initial goal, and obviously, they've smashed that already, and uh, it, it's really interesting um, to see you know, that they're nearly double uh, the lower end of that goal, and it's not even the end of 2021.
0: So, Steve, I didn't fall into a coma and miss two years. We're only in 2021, and if basically Disney Plus stopped growing, they'd still exceed their their growth target. Yeah. Look, Disney Plus is on target for 220 to 224 million, uh, 240 million subscribers by 2024. That is roughly, and some of that is going to be global expansion, and the, and the profits for that it's 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 all the numbers can get a bit wonky, but that being
1: might be losing dan we have some is that me or dan flaking out i think uh, dan's got some connectivity issues so uh we will move forward and uh and, and say but yes um dan you back
0: yeah we are not sure what is going on just had a bit of a technical issue here uh with that steve why don't you take stock investors comment and then we will throw it to the end of
1: All right, so <laughs> stock investors comment. Uh, he says, "Steve, how can I keep my money tree healthy and green?" Oh, he's talking about my money tree right behind me. Uh, I just make sure it has a, a nice, nice, uh, nice sunlight and water it once a week with my whiskey bottle above my head. So, uh, braid, trim, that, trim everything. <laughs> but yes, I, I love, I love my money tree. Uh, that's a, that's been a challenge. So, Dan, you're back again. Nope, he's not. So uh, we are going to continue talking about Disney here. Uh, as Dan mentioned, you know they're they're projecting 240 million Disney Plus subscribers by 2024. Uh, Bob Chapic remains confident that'll happen, uh, and that really seems like a realistic estimate. Uh, they're they're looking at 121 million plus uh, subscribers this quarter after their low single digit millions growth. And uh, really, just an impressive, um, uh, an impressive scale. Hey, Dan.
0: I believe I am back, but let's not push our luck and let's hit our finisher here I, again. I have no idea what's going on with the internet.
1: Dan is temporarily back. So, uh, Dan's finisher. Now he he shared this out on Twitter. Uh, he asked people how they watch TV. Uh, 7% of you said cable. 60.8% said paid streaming services. Combination of all 21.6%. None of the above, 10.6%. 10. Ten Almost 11% of you really not watch TV.
0: Daniel I don't back. believe that. And I actually don't <laughs> believe that that many people aren't watching some form of cable. I think <laughs> I a lot of people.
1: We're getting about five seconds of Dan at a time. (laughs) This is great.
0: (laughs) Steve, why don't you close the show here?
1: (laughs) Done. Um, So, yes, uh, I'd say paid streaming services, I agree. A combination of both. I was actually thinking about getting cable again after they send me uh, temporary um, deals before the end of the year. But, uh, you know, we see that continued trend of cord cutting. Uh, as far as how people are watching TV, uh, and that finishes up today's episode of seven investing. Now,
0: yeah. uh, Apologies for the technical glitches here. Not sure what's happening. Maybe there's thunderstorms or something. Maybe there's gremlins in the
1: (laughs) in the system. I will continue that for him. If you guys have any questions for us, uh, just send us an email at info.com. Uh, that is almost always me. Uh, responding but several of us have access to that we respond to all of your emails personally and uh, you can also reach out to us at seven investing on twitter we are very active there and love to talk with our subscribers and uh and other folks who follow us alike so uh thank you so much for dan klein uh, i'm steve Symington. thank you for joining us uh, we'll see you all again on friday